Welcome to The Dreaming. I'm Joe Fulgham. I'm Sasha Smolders. This is The Sandman, Issue 39, Soft Places. Soft Places, Issue 39, is our second in the Convergence series, the first being The Hunt, Mm -hmm. which was actually Issue 38, so it happened right before this even though we've had one in between. Well, let's take a look at the cover. This cover is pretty, but it has nothing to do with the story. <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, chest with some cherries. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't recognize any of it, except maybe the sand at the bottom. Some sand and out. The skull is a little deserty, you know, bleached bone. Yeah. But... Yeah, all in all, this is <laughs> this is just really pretty lies. Lies. Really pretty lies. Yeah, it's very pretty. And this is just photography, and that is a flat panel mask. Mm. Well, let's head inside. The year is 1273. Anno Domini, meaning year of our Lord. That's where we get AD from. Maybe your Lord, not my Lord. <laughs> <laughs> this is Marco Polo, as everybody who's read this. It's a Hi. young Marco Polo. Marco. Polo. Marco Polo was a Venetian merchant traveler whose journeys are recorded in the book The Travels of Marco Polo, published around 1380. His father and uncle Niccolo and Mafio had traveled through Asia and met Kublai Khan and had been requested to come meet him as he had not met any Europeans yet. Mm-hmm. Kublai sent the brothers back to the Pope with the following request. I have this directly from the actual travels of Marco Polo. He begged that the Pope would send as many as a hundred persons of our Christian faith, intelligent men acquainted with the seven arts. Now in this, Neil has that as being magic. Mm. But the seven arts are actually the liberal arts, which would be music, arithmetic, geometry, uh, astronomy, or astrology, depending on how science you wanted to get back then with the planets, grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Yeah, send me your smart dudes. Send me your intelligent people. Let's trade some knowledge here. Uh, Well qualified to enter into controversy and able clearly to prove by force of argument to idolaters and other kinds of folk that the law of Christ was best and that all other religions were false and not. And if they would prove this, he and all under him would become Christians and the church's liegemen. Finally, he charged his envoys to bring back to him some of the oil of the lamp which burns on the sepulcher of our Lord at Jerusalem. So... Kublai Khan and met these Europeans and was like, I've heard all these stories. This is so interesting. And you've got this one true God. I believe in rational discourse and arguing things to find out what's true. Send your wise people over and convince me and we'll follow your religion. Mm-hmm. Like, how cool is that? Yeah, it's pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome. In 1269, they returned to Venice. And that is actually when they met Marco, who was in his mother's womb when his father had left the city last. Oh, so the timeline is not exactly right in this story. They did say in this, I couldn't. he couldn't have been more than four. He was actually not born at all yet yeah. at the time. They had decided to do what Kublai Khan had asked, and they wanted to go to the Pope to say, here are his requests, please send these back. But the Pope had just recently died. Mm-hmm. And so they needed a new election to, to vote for a new Pope. It ended up being one of the longest elections. I think it actually is the longest election for a Pope ever. Uh, taking, I think, three years. What? And in it, there's this little back and forth, actually, in the story where his uncle and father go, oh, well, we'll go back to Venice then. 
And then they're like, uh, we have just waited a long time. Let's go back to that legate, which is a high-ranking church official. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to that legate that we talked to when, we, when he said there's no pope right now and see if we can get some of that oil, at least, to bring him back. And he said, oh, you'll have to go to Jerusalem to get it. So they went to Jerusalem, got some oil with, a, I guess, a signature of this legate saying, let him have some oil, mm-hmm. and then went back. And the legate was like, yeah, still no pope, sorry. And they said, well, we're just going to go with no pope and we're going to like totally apologize and we'll bring back the oil and uh, we'll write some letters saying we're so sorry because it's been too long and Kublai Khan is, is a very powerful man. And the legate said, sure, go ahead. And then they get back to Venice and they're about ready to head out. And surprise, the new pope has finally been elected. Woo-hoo. It's the legate that oh. they've been talking to. No, it's great. He oh, totally yeah. is okay. on their side. Okay. So, he, so he says, no, no, I'm sorry. Come back. Uh, and so they come back. And now he's the Pope. And he goes, okay, so here's what you got to do. And so he doesn't have a hundred wise men. He sends them two, as we hear later. I don't know if it's true that they just got afraid and left, but he did send two friars with them and a whole bunch of letters explaining their beliefs and things like that and mm. their science and stuff. So it was, instead of a hundred wise men, it was no, here's our good faith attempt at sharing knowledge with you. Yes, we should become friends. Like, that's a long way to take, like, a hundred scholars. Yeah, but see, Kublai Khan is this giant dictator, powerful person who can do whatever he wants. So if somebody had said to him, ooh, send me a hundred of your wise men, he would be like, yeah, I can do that. Cool. <laughs> yeah, it just, like, would still be a lot for, like, a hundred scholars to, like, yeah. cross this super deadly desert. Like, Kublai Khan's not going the other direction on it. He's not sending people to them. <laughs> well, that's true, but he thinks he's the big cheese, right? Yeah, he does, right. Yeah, like, but <laughs> really, if he wanted to learn something about them to see if their their culture was that much better, he could have, like, sent someone along with them to go yeah. back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so they finally set off, and this time when they set off, they take with them young Marco Polo. Yeah. And they actually do travel through the Desert of Lop, which we'll get to. And that's where our story starts. It's kind of like a boy adventurer thing. Kind of is. Yeah, yeah. Little venture brothers, but Marco Polo. Now, what happens with Marco is he does end up, of course, going off to meet the Kublai Khan. He ends up being there for around 20 years before heading back home and learns so much and travels. He's sent to travel all over the place, so he learns a lot. When he gets back, Venice is at war with Genoa. Oh, And he's like, well, I'm Venetian, so I better join the fight against the Genoans. He gets a a sloop and puts a trebuchet on it and then gets just captured pretty much right away by the Genoans, thrown into prison. And when he's in prison, he meets Messiah Rusticello, Mm -hmm. who is a writer. And he tells this man his all of his tales while they're in prison. Yeah. Who then he is the one who then writes them down and releases the travels of Marco Polo. Mm. So there was a lot of I thought. I wonder how much of this is real and how much of it is there's a fantasist who claims to have met a Marco Polo, Ooh. right? So I, I looked it up. The Wikipedia page on Marco Polo is actually quite excellent and talks about this. It turns out that a lot of the details that he gives mm. in his stories and things like that all really match up really, really well. Like things about salt taxes and uh, locations of cities and things like that. There are a few things missing he doesn't actually mention the Great Wall of China at all. Okay. Which I think should have been there at the time, but I guess he may not have noticed. I, I don't know. Maybe he didn't think it was a big deal mm. at the time. It seems f- from modern day to be incredibly accurate. Hmm. Yeah. 
Although Rusticello may have taken a few liberties. Anyway, after that, he was eventually released, became a wealthy merchant. He was a real person. Okay. And seemed to actually make a lot of money. So, mm. so Marco Polo's dad, mm-hmm. he was just like an adventurer? or He was He was also a traveler and a merchant trader. Um, oh, okay. I was like not quite sure exactly what his deal was. So while they would be traveling, they would be buying things in certain locations, selling them in other locations, trying to make profits, trying to trade along the way, trying to open up trade agreements like hey if you send a caravan this way every once in a while we'll send back this every once in a while things like that Mm. so a young marco polo is lost in the desert of lop gets separated from the caravan yeah he's wandering alone it's very windy and the sand is in his face Mm -hmm. and the first few pages is just a really well-written story of him just losing it in the sandstorm yeah. And finally passing out. Yeah, just of, of sand getting in his eyes and mm-hmm. and he spits the sand out of his mouth and then he instantly regrets the loss of fluid because mm-hmm. he doesn't have very much water. He just has a little bit of brackish water, enough to last him two days. Mm-hmm. Since we've read this, we know that when he wakes, he's not really in the Desert of Lop anymore. No. I thought he was, and I thought they were passing through the Desert of Lop. You enter the Desert of Lop, but because it's a soft place, kind of in the dreaming, it's where the dreaming and reality cross over. And there are lots of people who enter that then and don't get out. Mm, Okay. So he's in the part that you don't get out of. Is Lop like a word that means something? Is it? The Desert of Lop is located in central China and uh, has actually been used by the People's Republic as a nuclear testing ground. Yeah, so it's a real desert, also called Lopnar. Mm. Apparently used to be a giant marsh a long, long time ago. It's all dried up now. Yeah, ran all out of marsh and is now just a desert. Yep. And we're on the title page, which isn't in the collected versions, but in this one, Neil Gaiman, Storia, John Watkiss, Disenji Ikchine, Todd Klein, Lettering, Daniel Vazo, Colori, Alisa Quitney, Assistant Redditore, and Karen Berger, Redditore. Italian titles for everybody. Oh. I'll put this up in the show notes at thedreaming.motivedust.com. Over on the next page, when he wakes up, he recounts the tale of the Sandman. Mm-hmm. There's a magic man as comes to you when it's time for you to sleep. He's tall and pale and his clo- clothes of every color of the rainbow. He carries a bag of magic sand by his side. That seems to originate from about 1700 Europe. Actually, the Sandman and the sand in your eyes thing, mm-hmm. being him putting it in there, comes from there. But that whole idea seems to have been descended from the original Greek god Morpheus, mm-hmm. which then got filtered through all these other cultures and eventually became this candy-colored Sandman. Mr. Sandman. Yeah. Which bring it, me And then dream. we get those... Uh, bum, 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 bum. <laughs> yeah. I just like the multicolored... Because I cannot picture Dream wearing that. (laughs) Like, basically, Dream, just as, like, gaunt and depressing and kind of, like... Right. um, Like, early 90s goth, as you can imagine, but wearing the Joseph's Technicolor Dream coat. Totally. Yeah. I'd love to see that. Delirium could have bought him an outfit. Sure. I bought it for you. I hope you like it. I'm just picturing, like, a really, like, in... 
in Dream's weird voice that is represented by that <laughs> his text yeah. singing go 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 Joseph if you know what they say <laughs> <laughs> or uh um oh god what's that it doesn't matter it's fine <clears throat> I just I just ripping on a Donny Osmond <laughs> musical wow <laughs> Well, speaking of musicals, as we get over to page five, he starts to hear music. Mm-hmm. He can see where he's been, but there's nothing to indicate his future path, and he hesitates. And then he hears, I'll be glad when you're dead, you rascal you. I'll be glad when you're dead, you rascal you, also known as You Rascal You, is an American song written by Sam Thayard in 1929. It's legally titled, I'll be glad when you're dead. Its lyrics take the form of threats and complaints leveled against a man who has repaid the singer's hospitality and kindness by running off with the singer's wife. This is the Louis Armstrong version. Boy, you know one thing? I sure be glad when you're dead. You ain't no good at all. You're snooping around my house and laughing and grinning in my face and and trying to bite me in the back of my head. You all you. I'll be glad when you're dead, you rascal you. I'll be glad when you're dead, you rascal you. Boy, I brought you into my home. You wouldn't leave my wife alone. I'll be glad when you're dead, you rascal you. Boy, I'll be glad when you're dead. I love Louis Armstrong's voice. Thayer did actually write a song several years later that was a sequel called I Done Caught That Rascal Now. Oh, beautiful. I can't find it, though. I can't find a copy of that. I did find somebody on YouTube has the original vinyl of a Sam Thayard one and had pointed their camera at their player while it played. And I'll put that video up in the show notes at thedreaming.motivedust.com if you want to check out the very original. I'll be glad when you're dead, you rascal you. It's All right. pretty cool. I guess this is the first clue that wherever he is does not exist in time necessarily yeah exactly it's definitely a song that is well after marco polo's time for Mm -hmm. sure as well as the next song that's mentioned won't you come home bill bailey which was originally titled bill bailey won't you please come home a popular song published in 1902 written by huey cannon an american songwriter and pianist i gotta say though this version of it by della reese in 1963 is my favorite won't you come home, Bill Bailey? I come on home. She moans the whole day long. I'll do the cooking, honey. I'll pay the rent. I know I done you wrong. Yes, indeed. Remember that rainy evening. Put you out with nothing, nothing but a fine tooth comb. Yes, I did. You see, I know I'm to blame, and it's a low-down, dirty shame, Bill Bailey. I want you, please, come on home. I'm wondering, I want you to come home, Bill Bailey, brother William. You come on home, this woman more. Oh, it just gets better from there. That's the Della Reese who eventually became like one of the stars of Touched by an Angel, right? That's the same Della Reese? Yes. <laughs> okay, awesome. 
oh, here at the end, she's killing it. Amazing. Yeah, I uh, was only barely conscious of that song until doing the research, and now that's a song I love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then in the next panel... Well, he's a slurping. He's <laughs> a slurping that water. <laughs> while you, while you hear, while he's slurping the water, how are you going to keep him down on the farm after they've seen Paris is a World War I song that rose to popularity after the war had ended. The lyrics highlight concern that American soldiers from rural environments would not want to return to farm life after experiencing the European city life and culture of Paris during World War I. Here's Nora Bays. me up right yeah well because all the my family are italian immigrants and they all say ooh la la <laughs> all of them like they oh ooh la la like that's that's directly in the uh vecchiato vernacular <laughs> the next word bubble of lyrics is the once i built a railroad now it's done brother can you spare a is brother can you spare a dime also sung as buddy can you spare a dime it's one of the best known songs of the great depression in america it was written in 1930 by lyricist ey yip harburg and composer jay gorney it was a part of the 1932 musical review americana i'm pretty sure it's part of george miller's the american clock too yeah i think i sang that when i did the american clock Here's Bing Crosby's version. They used to tell me I was building a dream And so I followed them all When there was earth to plow Or guns to bear I was always there Right on the job They used to tell me 
I was building a dream With peace and glory ahead Why should I be standing in line Just waiting for breath Once I built a railroad I made it run Made it race against time Once I built a railroad Now it's done Brother, can you spare a dime? Yeah, I recognize the chorus. I don't recognize the the intro, but I definitely recognize the chorus. The intro feels different from what I know from the American Clock as well, so there could be a different version. Oh, that's super common Mm. in uh, music from this era, especially when you're introducing it into a musical or you're doing whatever. Like, it was very, very common to write a separate piece of music that's the intro. That's like Mm -hmm. you can hear the way he does it, right? Like it's it's done like line by line by line. They're kind of weirdly drawn out. Yeah, you see that in a ton of tunes, and they usually those get cut when they when these songs end up in uh, in the real books and in as jazz standards and whatnot. Hmm. Those those rambly intros get cut. The next word balloon. Remember that the city is a funny place. Something like a circus or a sewer is from the 1976 song Coney Island Baby by Lou Reed. Remember that the city is a funny place Something like a circus or a sewer And just remember different people have peculiar tastes And the Glory of the glory of the glory of might see you through. And finally, the third bubble: any view of things that is not strange is false is a quote from French poet, essayist, and philosopher Ambrose Paul Toussaint Jules Valéry, a.k.a. Paul Valéry. He was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature in 12 different years. Whoa. That line is from Chose Tous in 1932, which I am thinking translates to Things Killed. And I have a little bit of context for it. He's uh, talking about being a philosopher. The full paragraph I've got is, Any view of things that is not strange is false. If something is real, it can only lose its reality by becoming familiar. To meditate as a philosopher is to return from the familiar to the strange, and in the strange to confront the real. Which seems a bit like what's going on in this story, with the real meeting the strange. Mm -hmm. That was a pretty obscure quote. Uh, As a matter of fact, if you Google that quote, it's mostly attributed to Neil now. Oh. Yeah. It's a little difficult to track down. I found a few years ago, Neil himself retweeting somebody who had quoted him saying that, saying, "Uh, is this me? I don't think so. (laughs) But I didn't find anybody correcting him. (laughs) 
Well, you did it. You figured it out. I did. You well, cracked the code. Yeah, so did Douglas Copeland. He Douglas Copeland, in one of his things, quotes Paul Valeri. Mm. Well, so someone starts yelling, Marco, ho, Marco. Polo. He doesn't know the rules. He says father. What? He doesn't know the rules anyway. They're not in a swimming pool. It doesn't matter. Somebody shouts Marco. You say Polo. I guess that's right. You'd think that Marco Polo would know that. Yeah. There's a dude that I can only describe as being dressed as like a really eccentric wizard. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> or somebody from Pisa, because that's who this is, Rustichello de Pisa. It seems like Rustichello is actually the Rustichello of the time that he is in the prison with the older Marco Polo. Mm-hmm. And he is dreaming... And he's come to the dreaming and is dreaming of being in the desert of Lop and meeting young Marco Polo, which is a story that he's heard from the older Marco Polo. So he thinks he's dreaming of, of that time. But what's really happening is because it's a soft place, the young Marco Polo is also in the dreaming where Rustichello is dreaming. And so he thinks he's dreaming of Marco Polo, but it's actually when Marco Polo was literally trapped. And because Rustichello wasn't in a dream, like wasn't in a desert before this, he was in prison. He knows that it's a dream. Yeah. And he gets immediately excited yeah. because it's pretty rare to realize you're in a dream when you're in a dream. Yeah. So neat. he's like, let's take advantage of it. That's right. And he calls him Messiah Marco Millions. That's actually Il Million is one of his nicknames. I think because of his wealth, I couldn't find the etymology for that, but that's what—that's my headcanon. I'm sticking with that. Hmm. Millionaire Marco. And Marco identifies it as the Desert of Lop. What Rustichello says from memory is taken pretty much verbatim from the travels of Marco Polo. Birds and beasts there are none in this desert, because they find nothing to eat. But I assure you, a very strange thing is found here, which I shall relate to you. The truth is this. When a man is riding by night through this desert, and some things happen to make him loiter or lose touch with his companions, by dropping asleep, or for some other reason, and afterwards he wants to rejoin them, then he hears spirits talking, and will suppose them to be his companions." Sometimes, indeed, they even hail him by name. Often these voices make him stray from the path, so that he never finds it again. And in this way many travelers have strayed and perished. Sometimes in the night they are conscious of a noise like the clatter of a great cavalcade of riders away from the road. And believing that these are of their own company, they go where they hear the noise, and when day breaks, find they are victims of an illusion and an awkward plight. And there are some who, in crossing this desert, have seen a host of men coming towards them, and, suspecting that they were robbers, have taken flight, so having left the beaten track, and not knowing how to return to it, they have gone hopelessly astray. Even by daylight men hear these spirit voices. Often you fancy you can hear the strains of many musical instruments, especially the sound of drums and the clash of arms. For this reason, travelers make a point of keeping close together. Before they go to sleep at night, they set up a sign pointing in the direction they have to travel and they fasten little bells all around their beasts so that they may prevent them from straying from the path. Hmm. 
Thus it is that the desert is crossed. Mm-hmm. There, word for word, or near as, damn it. Marco gets the reveal here. What was that? It's from the account of the travels of my cellmate, as rendered by me, Rustichello of Pisa. It's a description of the world. He's seen it all, you see, Marco Polo. He's seen the world. I just write it down. Marco Polo? That's me. Of course, I should have known I'm dreaming. That's what's happening, young Marco. I'm dreaming. So I'm dreaming too? Of course not. You're nothing. You're just something in my dream. Oh, I don't feel like something in a dream. Two dreamers insisting the other one's the dream. It's great. (laughs) Because that's what a dream would do if you start accusing, oh, I'm dreaming, so you're a dream. It would be like, no, no, I'm dreaming, you're a dream. You're the dream. (laughs) No, you're the evil clone. (laughs) (laughs) Rustichello wants to meet some women. Mm Mm-hmm. It's difficult to find women when you're trapped in a Genoan prison. Yeah, yeah. Even though he knows this is Marco, he's like, no, no, don't worry about it. This was 20 years ago that you were stuck in this desert on your way to Shangdu. Shangdu, it's usually spelled with a D instead of the T, is also known as Xanadu. It was the capital of Kublai Khan's Wan dynasty in China before he decided to move his throne to the Jin dynasty capital of Zongdu, which literally means middle capital, which he renamed to Kanbalik, and it's, that's present-day Beijing. Hmm. Shangdu then became his summer capital. Shangdu was visited by Marco Polo in about 1275 and was destroyed in 1369 by the Ming army under Zhu Yuanzang. So yeah, Xanadu, Shangdu, hmm. same place. So he's saying, ah, don't worry. I know that you make it past here. So like, I know I've met you in the future. So this isn't going to be a problem. Let's just, uh, let's go do something like, hey, look, a fire. Oh, look at me arguing with a dream. Yeah. (laughs) Trying to tell a dream that it's fine. Yeah. (laughs) And there's a fire and we get to see Gilbert again. Yeah. Good old Fiddler's Green. Yeah. Last scene in the doll's house. And he says, hola. Mm -hmm. Hola. I haven't seen anyone. I came out to the soft places to think, to get away from myself. He does have wine, though. He's got a lot of things. Yeah. He seems to have a sack that's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. And in it, he also has some jelly babies. See, at first, I wasn't 100% certain that this was Fiddler's Green. Like, I saw the glasses Mm -hmm. and I was like, oh, it's him. Maybe. And then as soon as I saw whom... Yes. That was like, it's Mm. him. That's exactly what he says. (laughs) A stub of a train ticket, a chalk, a brown paper bag. Hmm. See what happens when you leave and go somewhere else. A packet of jelly babies. Ah, wine and tankards. The jelly babies is a soft, chewy candy native to the British Isles. It's uh, very much an iconic trademark of, at the very least, the fourth Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. Although it's used by several of them. Mm -hmm. He always carried a bag full of jelly babies. Mm-hmm. Sir, forgive me for asking, but are you a dream? Oh, yes. <laughs> See? <laughs> <laughs> and we learned something from Gilbert. Rustichello asks if there's any female company. He aches for the joys of love. Bless my soul, no, I'm trying to get away from all that. The only reason I'm out here is because they keep coming for walks in me. Long ones, gazing into each other's eyes, whispering sweet and, to be frank, rather embarrassing nothings. So I've taken an evening off. I'm sorry? My lord and his new woman. I've got nothing against women or love, but, well, it's embarrassing. Enough of that. So, Dream has somebody. 
Dream has a squeeze. Mm-hmm. And now, it's not Lucifer or Constantine, <laughs> so I'm upset. It uh, Unless Lucifer's changed to a woman, unless either has changed to a woman, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Up until now in the story, we don't know when this is. No. But we do find, we do get a year later on. Yeah, they it, say it's 1992. Says Fiddler, for Fiddler's Green, it's 1992, which is the, quote, current time for the Sandman. Which means Dream's got a new squeeze, and this is the first we've heard of it. Sandy has a girlfriend, mm-hmm. and he didn't even tell us. And that does normally doesn't end well. No. Right? Have we had a good one yet? I don't think so. It's like Buffy. Buffy shouldn't date people, and neither should Sandy. <laughs> doesn't turn out well. Oh, uh, you want them to be unhappy? I mean, maybe. I don't know. Sometimes you're just too important to have a main squeeze. Oh wow, too important. Yeah. I don't. So the Pope then? The Pope doesn't have a girlfriend. That's what I'm saying. Well, probably a good choice. Marco then recounts his father's story. Mm-hmm, the one we talked at the beginning of the episode. Yep. Only uh, it's a little more magical. It is. Yeah. The Khan's priests uh, keep keep the weather steady at his uh, at his palace. Yeah. Can you do that? so good gracious so what happened well they came back i was 15 i can't have been more than four when they left uh he was not more than four he was zero Mm -hmm. he was uh, apparently in in his mother's uh, insides and when discussing whether or not there are miracle workers good old fiddler's green lets it slip there's a terribly nice franciscan in 17th century assisi who can fly iq of 60 and perhaps a little too heavily into self-mutilation but he can honestly fly St. Joseph of Copertino, bit after your time. Oh, sorry, pray continue. <laughs> Joseph of Cupertino, not Copertino, was an Italian conventual Franciscan friar who was honored as a Christian mystic and saint. He was said to have been remarkably unclever, but prone to miraculous levitation and intense ecstatic visions that left him gaping. So he was a very simple man, uh, very simple-minded. The, the way that they describe him, IQ of no more than 60 is probably about accurate. I don't think they actually did an IQ test. They didn't have him back then. But he wasn't even like educated and, and intelligent enough to be a shoemaker, which is what his father was. And so he applied to be uh, a monk, uh, this Franciscan friar. They refused. He begged them because his family hated him because he was so bad at everything he did. And as he grew older, he had more and more of these ecstatic visions, mm-hmm. that, these religious ecstasies, and he would throw himself into the air, and people claimed that he could fly. Hmm. Of course, most people are very skeptical of this, but about 103 years later, they finally said, hey, let's, uh, let's make a saint out of that guy everybody said could fly. Yeah. Because that's saintly. So it's St. Joseph of Cupertino, and he is, I'm not kidding, the patron saint of aviation, astronauts, mental handicaps, test-taking, and poor students. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah, aviation, because he could fly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's really all all that flying is, is throwing yourself into the air, falling, and not hitting the ground. Right. Thank you, Douglas Adams. Mm-hmm. The rest of what we've got here is true. Two elderly Dominican priests 
who couldn't do miracles. Neil added the story of the cup and the balls. Mm. Well, not so you notice. One of them had a little thing he did with a cup and some balls, but it wasn't very impressive. It's like a gambling thing, isn't it? Uh, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I guess so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess he's talking about the uh, what's that called? The cup and balls. Three uh, not three card Monty. Shells. It's called shells. The shells game. Yeah. Maybe it was that. I don't know. He uh, said a cup and some balls. Oh, okay. That's that's the opposite of the shells game. That's the balls game. Mm. It's where you hide a shell underneath a ball. Interesting. It's much more magical. <laughs> he says it's not impressive, but come on. Mm. Mm. Well, he uh, his buddy says that, that Marco Polo is just like so good at talking about cities. Mm-hmm. He's like the best at it. The soul of the city. Kublai Khan stayed in his summer palace in summer and his winter palace in winter like a spider edging from one side of the web to another. And you went out to all the cities in his empire and came home and described them to him. Or at least that's what the travels of Marco Polo claim. Mm. Like I said, it seems accurate. It seems that he knew what he was talking about when he talked about these cities. Mm. Mm. Well, uh, besides them getting uh, on the subject of food and a... Uh, Sandwich that is cheese and pickle. Delicious. This is not pickle as in sliced pickled cucumber, which is what we call pickles in North America, but actually pickle meaning a sweet pickled chutney sauce. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what the flavor is. It'd probably be good. I but can see it. It sounds pretty good, I guess. I think, though, like the pictures I've seen, it's just like a slab of cheese with some basically, it looks like relish. Mm-hmm. Uh, on a piece of white bread, maybe with some margarine or butter on it. Mm-hmm. And like the cheese is not at all melted. It's just a big hunk between some bread. And I'm like, that is so close to being a grilled cheese, which would make it much, much better. Sure. But if your cheese isn't being kept refrigerated, it's soft. It's softer. And it's maybe doesn't necessarily as necessary to melt it. Fair, I, I guess. Yeah. Not necessary, but still good. Oh, it's good. Don't get me wrong. I love melted cheese. Can you do grilled cheese and pickles? Is that a, is that a new English thing? Maybe I'm maybe I'm saying, come on, you got to do this. And people in the UK are like, yeah. I mean, I yeah, definitely put pickles, like our pickles, in Ugh. dill pickles in grilled cheese sandwiches. I don't. Ugh. But that's because I'm disgusting and they're delicious. So in the distance, these ethereal warriors show up. Mm-hmm. And they uh, they want to have a little chat, a chatteroonie. Yeah. Gilbert says, I fear your business is not with me, friend, but with my master. Mm. And they're wondering if uh, if they leave this dream, what's going to happen to them? Yeah. Will they die of old age? Will they return to the world on the day they left it and live out the span of their lives? And Gilbert doesn't know. He wishes he knew. Mm-hmm. And they ride on. I like that they're done much more like sketches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let, there's not much to be done for them. They've been here too long, it seems. I am really not sure what's going on with this guy's eyes, though. Like, one of them is barely open. Mm. In the close-up shot. Almost looks like he's half asleep. Yeah, or drugged or not completely awake. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Interesting. Hopefully his horse is doing the driving then. That's right, yeah. (laughs) Are they dreams too? Oh, yes. After their fashion. But then we're all dreams in our fashion. I'm not. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm not. <laughs> I'm not a dream. And Gilbert describes the soft places mm. to Marco. And how Marco ruined them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, their loss is your fault. And he also mentions Huang Sang Ibn Battuta. Huang Sang, also known as Zhuangzang or Sang, was a Buddhist monk born in China who traveled to India in 629 to learn at the roots of Buddhism, uh, despite the ban against crossing the frontiers. He went alone via the Gobi Desert, Samarkand, Tashkent, and Kashmir. And in 645, he returned to China where he wrote his memoir. So he's kind of the Chinese Marco Polo. He went off to India and learned about them and came back and said, hey, there's this other place called India. Mm-hmm. Abu Abdullah ben Batuta Lahwata from 1304 to 1378 was an Arab born in Tangiers who traveled to Arabia, Ethiopia, Egypt, Bulgaria, the southern Russian steppes, India, the Maldives, China, Indonesia, Sri Lanka, and Western Africa over the course of 25 years. Wow. In part for the purpose of visiting every Muslim country in the world. Huh. He wrote a narrative of his travels after returning to Morocco, and there's an article on him in the December 1991 issue of National Geographic. Sorry, when was his whole travels? He was in the uh, 1300s, yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's a long way to go. So that's, you know, about 50 years or so after uh, Marco Polo. Mm-hmm. I think he went farther than Marco Polo, though, didn't he? Uh, it seems that way, yeah. Well, Marco went pretty far. He went from Eastern Europe all the way to Beijing, China, and back, and did a pretty big loop while doing it. Well, he went from Europe, Europe, because he's from Italy, but... He'd set off from Istanbul, which is pretty Eastern Europe. Mm. And after we learn about the soft places and how reality is soft here, but these explorers have gone out and kind of solidified them by mapping them yeah, and figuring them out. It kind of reminds me of, I, I can't remember the book now. I think it's a Michael Moorcock, potentially an eternal champion who would go out into the chaos and carve reality out of it. Mm. Uh, but I, I can't off the top of my head remember who that was but it feels the same way except instead of fighting it in this it's just by exploring it you kind of make it real i really like that idea it's schrodinger's uh desert yeah yeah kind of and not only is it odd geographically it's also odd temporally Gilbert notes, time at the edge of the dreaming is softer than elsewhere, and here in the soft places it loops and whirls on itself. In the soft places where the border between dreams and reality is eroded or has not yet formed. Time. It's like throwing a stone into a pool. It casts ripples. Hmm, that's where we are. Here, in the soft places where the geographies of dream intrude upon the real. And there's not very many left, but there's still a few. Mm-hmm. Uh, the place they're in now is known as the Taklamakan Desert. Yeah. Then he says, in my day, that's 1992, meaning that Gilbert is coming from our basically current timeline of the Sandman. Mm-hmm. So that's the modern day. Mm-hmm. The Taklamakan Desert is a desert in southwest Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region in northwest China. It's surrounded by the Kunlun Mountains to the south, the Pamir Mountains, and the Tian Shan to the west and north, and the Gobi Desert to the east. And then through the Gobi, I believe, you'll hit the Desert of Lop. They're all kind of connected together a little bit. Mm. There's a big, huge desert spot in that northwestern part of China. Mm-hmm. The name may be an Uyghur borrowing of the Persian Tark, which means to leave alone, out or behind, and or relish, relinquish or abandon, and Makan meaning place. 
Some sources claimed it means place of no return, more commonly interpreted as once you get in, you never get out. <laughs> Sounds like the beginning of like a, a movie, you know, like. Once you go in, you never get out. Yeah, like the movie would be like, Tackle Mackin. Once you go in, you won't come out again. Dun dun. There's a few other soft places left in the world, a few thousand square miles of central Australia, a couple of Pacific Islands, a field in Ireland, and an occasional mountain in Arizona. An occasional mountain? It's not a very big mountain, but it's only there occasionally. <laughs> and then Fiddler's Green introduces himself and picks up and walks away. Yeah. I guess he's done. Yeah, he got away for long enough. He doesn't want to be there when Dream shows up. I think that might be it. <laughs> yeah. Might be messy. Rustichello thanks him for the wine and then accuses him of being a dream <laughs> before it seems waking up. I'm pretty sure that Rustichello is really Rustichello. That it's yeah. not a dream of Rustichello. No, Rustichello is dreaming and he showed up in this place. Yeah. Yeah. And then he just disappears in a poof of smoke. Yeah. And after he leaves, there's somebody standing behind Marco. Mm -hmm. It's Dream. Good old Sandman, ready to stick some sand in your eyes. Pocket sand. And he is weakened. We find out, again, the soft places. Time is weird. Things lap over top of them. This is Dream just as he's escaped from being imprisoned by Roderick and Alex Burgess in their basement. Mm-hmm. This is right after he uh, chastised mm -hmm. his captor, <laughs> as right. in trapped Alex in a moment of constant waking in right. a nightmare. Yes. Constantly waking <laughs> from another more and more horrible nightmare. Yeah, and he's weak. Marco offers him water. He doesn't have much, but he offers him water. Mm-hmm. And he thanks him. And Marco lets him know that he met Fiddler's Green, who said that he was in love, that he went walking all the time with a woman. Mm. Did he say who the woman was? I don't remember. I'm sorry. It is not important. It has happened already, or it is still to come. And forewarned is seldom forearmed, not even in the shifting zones. <laughs> so not even in a place where you've got time travel. Can being be, can be forewarned. Salmon uh, before I'm for him has a girlfriend and he hasn't told us, and I'm upset. Yeah. So know. so again, Fiddler's Green is from our timeline. Mm. He's from the modern. He's mm -hmm. from the current. This is not a future Fiddler's Green. So Dream has a new girlfriend. Now this Dream doesn't know who it is because he hasn't. We don't think met or dated her. At least started the relationship yet because he's just escaping. Mm -hmm. Any ideas? Who it might be? Debbie Harry from Blondie. <laughs> it could be Debbie Harry from Blondie. That would explain uh, all those great songs that she wrote. Oh, wait. In 1992? Yeah. How old is Bjork? I, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> if she's a reasonable age for Dream to be dating her in 1992, then that's what my money's She would have been 27. Yeah. He's dating Bjork. <laughs> that explains everything. He's dating Bjork. Okay. Oh, she embarked on her solo career in 1993. I think you could be right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Headcanon. He's dating Bjork. Okay. 
we get another confirmation that Dream looks different depending on who's looking at him in the bottom right of this page as well. Mm-hmm. Are you always so pale? That depends on who's watching. And uh, and Marco asks if he can help him get home, if he can help him get to his papa in the desert. And Dream says, no, you come in, you do not go out again. But they said, they said I'd get out. The fat man and the other man, Rusticello, they said I'd get out. They said I'd go home. I don't want to be trapped here forever. I can appreciate that. Hmm. Rusticello, the fantasist. You're Marco Polo. Yes. I see. Yes, you were trapped. I know how that feels. You gave me water, and I am not ungrateful. However, I am very weak, and if I help you, I might not be able to help myself. And then Dream smiles. I mean, he's face palming, he's touching himself and thinking, but there's a smile there, and it's definitely reinforced later. And I think that this is a really big turning point in the story of the Sandman. And it was only, again, on a recent reading, I'm finding out so much more as we go through these that I realize this. Again, I know know a lot of what's coming up as well. So believe me that this feels like a big swing point. Mm -hmm. Because before Dream's imprisonment, all those representations of him and all those flashbacks we've got, he's much more aristocratic and haughty and uncaring. He's not kind. He doesn't really care to make things right for people that much. He's not evil or mean, but he, he's just kind of like, he's above it all. Yeah. But the dream afterwards seems to care more about other people to, uh, remember he went to Nuala back, walked back to her in that one scene and said, you did the right thing. Mm-hmm. He knew that he needed to tell her that. That's kind of a new dream thing. And I think that this scene specifically is like a real turning point for him. That he sees this mortal human trapped forever in a desert with almost no water, finds him when he's almost at his weakest, and without even a hesitation says, here, have some water. Yeah, they both have this limited resource. Mm-hmm. And this human who has almost not like who's who's has no power in comparison to Dream mm-hmm. easily gave up half of what he had, and Dream sits there and like realizes that moment. Well, even if it could mess me up, I should give up half of what I have. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and he obviously survives it because somebody comes and gets him. On the previous page. He confirms that the soft places are also the shifting zones. And in the Sandman number two, when he's recovering in the House of Mystery, Abel notes that it was that Gregory found him in the shifting zones. So this is where he's found by Gregory. Gregory the gargoyle. The gargoyle. The green one. Yeah. So he doesn't make it out of the shifting zones as his, out of his own power. He really right. does give up his ability to leave. Yeah. And luckily is saved by one of his minions. By, again, dudes. kindness. So, again, yeah. helping other people. So this is, again, he's like, well, if helping people is good, then I'll keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hold out your hands. As the sand fell into his hand, Marco heard the rumble of distant thunder. Storms are coming, he thought as if from a long way off. He found himself able to see each falling grain 
distinct and unique, and he knew then that he was truly dreaming. There are really patterns. It was a revelation of a kind. Dreams and sand and stories, deserts and cities and time. The grains fell slowly, tumbling down from the Dream King's pale fingers into his own travel-stained hands. The patterns they formed as they fell illuminated his mind, a landscape strobed by flashes of distant lightning. I'll never forget this, he thought triumphantly. I'll never forget what I've learned here. But his world went dark and soft and nowhere, and Marco plunged down with it. He hears the jingling of little bells. A horse, yes. Then strong hands pulling him out of the sand. Hmm. And his papa saves him! Yeah. You had us worried. We heard such strange things last night, boy. It seemed like a horde of men was riding past, although we saw nothing. Dreams and illusions breed in this damn place. Father? Yes? I have to tell you about the patterns. Patterns? I... I'm sorry. Nothing. A dream. I had a dream. I don't know. It's gone now. I don't remember. Well, come and eat. We set off again in an hour. In future, you must ignore the illusions. They're no more than dreams, and of as little importance as that. They nearly killed you, Marco. Do you understand me? Yes, father. Thus it is that the desert is crossed. And even though it's Dream who saves him here, Mm. he's awoken by the jingling of bells, which if we remember from the story of this desert that Rustichello tells, the bells are what they use to be found in the desert so that they don't get lost this way. Mm -hmm. And the story ends, thus it is that the desert is crossed. So it's not really a story of, oh my goodness, it's dangerous, don't ever go into the desert. It's a, and here's how you survive story, which I really appreciate about that. It's it's a story of a terrible, once you go in, you don't go out because you get pulled off by these sounds, but we put bells on our horses so that we can find each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that it's the sense. bells that end up waking him up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, I mean, I think Marco Polo saved himself by being kind to a stranger. Yeah. In his dreams, for sure. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, he was kind to everyone he met and curious. He was kind and curious and unassuming and yeah Mm -hmm. so our next issue is orpheus it doesn't actually have an issue number because it was released as a what's called a special so it was the sandman special number one (gasps) the song of orpheus and uh i'm looking at the cover for it Mm -hmm. there's some definite butt action going on here yeah man butt man butt so my prediction is that it's going to be a, a story of Orpheus. Like, it's going to be a, a little explanation of Orpheus and his life before he became a severed head. Okay. Uh, and also uh, kind of a bit of the story of his mama and his papa. And maybe what a deadbeat dad his papa is. <laughs> yeah. That's that's where my predictions for this issue yeah. are. It's going to be about old Orpho. 
Yeah, okay. I think it's a pretty, I think that's kind of an obvious uh, oh. prediction, seeing as how it's called Orpheus. Okay, but a lot of it's going to be about what a Debbie daddy daddy is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I guess we'll have to find out next episode. You've been dreaming of the Sandman, issue 39, Soft Places. For show notes, visit thedreaming.motivedust.com. Support future episodes at patreon.com slash thedreaming, and we'd sure appreciate it if you tell your friends about us. Our theme music is Oneri by Kai Engel. Hear more at kaiengel.bandcamp.com. The Dreaming was recorded in Burnaby, British Columbia, Canada, on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, Kikate, and tsleil Nations. I'm Joe Fulgham. Thanks for listening. Time to wake up. <laughs>